Well, good morning, Harvest. Good morning to our guests. Great to be with you uh, this morning. Thanks, Jordan, for hosting again. Yet lots of chatter about my hair. And Jordan, your haircut is spot on. Amazing. Uh, so there are some that think that it's time for me, but I got to confess, I'm, I'm feeling like I like it. I like the locks. If you have it, you might as well flaunt it. And so here I am in all uh, the uh, glory of this long hair. And um, I'll just tell you right now, it's a lot longer than it looks. And uh, product is a wonderful thing. All right, enough about all that silliness. Uh, we are going to get into God's word. And uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 in this Conversations with Jesus series. And I know it's been a blessing to many of you. Thanks for interacting with us on, on uh, this series. Uh, back in, uh, I think around 2007, I had the privilege of going to Israel. I'm going to show you a picture right now. I took a similar picture, but this one actually isn't the one I took. Um, one of the scenes that greeted us on our tour as we went up uh, to the north part of the country, to the Golan Heights, were beautiful fields that were inaccessible, fenced off, and with these signs warning that these were uh, fields littered with landmines left over from a previous conflict. And of course, entering these fields, the warning signs are there, because entering these fields uh, could be um, obviously very dangerous, could result in severe injury or even uh, death. And um, here's the thing, that's the way I feel about this message. I feel like as we open Matthew 9 to look at these uh, verses, to talk about the issue of partiality and prejudice, I feel like we're entering into a minefield. And uh, we are going to look at these, um, this, this kind of two-part challenge of partiality and prejudice from a conversation that Jesus had with some religious leaders. And uh, they were very much given to both. And you see that pattern throughout the gospel as we interact with the religious leaders. And Jesus calls that out, not just with his words, but as we're going to see in the text today, he calls it out with his actions as well. And as much as we, 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 we come back to where we live right now, and as Canadians think we're so enlightened and we have our charter of rights and freedoms and we think we're such a, a tolerant people, but there are still so many examples of prejudice being exercised against people, of partiality toward others in our culture today. And as Christians, we must be leading the way. We have to admit that this is a struggle, that it's hard. And that we have to be relentless, really, in our pursuit of eradicating partiality and prejudice from our lives. In fact, what we need to see as Christians is that, and this is in your notes now, all partiality and prejudice must be eliminated if the gospel is to be believed. And we want the gospel to be believed. The gospel is the whole thing for us. We preach Christ in Him crucified. We have no other message. And so let's turn to the text. It is in a gospel. It's in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. I'll read the text, then I'll pray for us, and then we'll begin looking at this important and challenging topic. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, that's our text. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray right now and ask God to bless this uh, time together. Father, we are uh, blessed to be together again uh, this morning. We're the church of Jesus Christ. God, we're bound together in a spiritual union by the power of the Spirit himself. Thank you for that. And give us a sense right now in all the different locations where we are, give us a sense as we gather of your presence A sense, Father, that we are truly one body in Jesus Christ. And we ask you to speak to us, Lord. Father, we're leaning in, we're listening hard for your heart and your mind on this important matter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're saying amen where you are right now to that prayer. All right, let's look at this matter, partiality and prejudice. Let's define those two words to understand exactly what we're talking about. Uh, Not complicated where these definitions come from. This is a dictionary.com using these two words, almost two sides of the same coin. Partiality now uh, is a favorable bias, a special fondness, a preference or liking for someone or something. So it has this very kind of like positive sound to it that I'm favoring a certain person or people. Prejudice, the other side of the coin, is more of an unfavorable and or unreasonable opinion, attitude or feeling, especially regarding a racial, social, religious person or group. And so on the one side, on partiality, I'm gathering someone to myself because I really prefer them, but by doing that, I'm excluding some others. And prejudice is, I don't like you at all, and I'm pushing you away from me. You can see how those two are both very negative. Both are a problem for Christians, and that's why we're saying all partiality, all prejudice must be eliminated if the gospel's to be believed. So here, let's go after it now first. If we're going to do that, We have to call everyone to life in Christ. Notice everyone, italicized in your notes there, everyone. We see first that verse 9, Jesus saw this man named Matthew. He's sitting at the tax booth. He's doing his job. He says to him, follow him. Matthew gets up from his tax booth, leaves what he was doing, and starts to follow Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is he's modeling the mission that he would later give to his disciples and as a consequence that he's given to us today. This is still our mission. Matthew 28, 19, that we would go into all the world and preach the gospel. We have to go everywhere and preach the gospel. It would be later stated in in Acts 1, 8 that we should, um, again, make disciples, that we should do this to the end of the earth. And if we're going to be on mission, we're going to encounter as we do that, if you're going to the end of the earth, if you're doing it in the entire world, then you're going to, as a consequence, you're going to meet people of different languages and different cultures and different racial groups, different customs, different skin colors, different life situations. Every kind of person there is, you're going to meet along the way. And we've been given the mission 
to pre preach that gospel to every single one of us. Jesus says, go everywhere. Call everyone to follow me. So obviously, there's no room for partiality. There's no room for saying, well, I like these people better, so I'm going to reach them, but I'm not going to reach that group. There's no prejudice in saying, I'm just going to avoid those people altogether. We should have this. And we should understand this as the followers of Christ, that there's no room for these things, but it is a struggle. You know, I'm just thinking about Peter. Peter was there. Peter had already been called. Peter was already following Jesus. Peter's one of the disciples who's mentioned here having the meal, one of the disciples that the Pharisees came to and asked the question of. Peter's there. He's seeing this in real time. That now when he wouldn't have before sat down with a tax collector, he's now having a meal with a tax collector. And yet Peter struggled with this. And he, honestly, Peter would still be struggling with it after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the mission was launched and the apostles were already out preaching and planting churches. In fact, jot down this reference, Acts chapter 10. There's this Roman centurion uh, named uh, Cornelius. And he had come along the way uh, through being a, you know, appointed, deployed uh, to Israel. He had actually come to be converted to Judaism and he was praying. And during this time of prayer, he had a vision from God to call for Peter, who at the time was in Joppa, who would, who would then come if he would send messengers to him. Peter would come and explain the gospel to him so that Cornelius would actually know about Christ and the gospel. And now, Peter also received a vision, but he was gripped by his own prejudices. And we're not going to go into all the details of Acts 10. You can read it for yourself. But as he's having the dream, he's actually having a pushback conversation with God about what's clean and what's unclean. And the lesson that God was trying to deliver to Peter in this moment was, you can't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And while he's just coming, to coming out of that vision... The messengers from Cornelius arrive. And Peter's mind, this is a Roman, he's a centurion, he's a Gentile. And the lesson was obvious. Peter was to make his way to where Cornelius was and to spend some time with him and to explain the gospel. The message was clear. The gospel is for Gentiles, it's for Romans. That there's no room for partiality, it's just for Jews. There's no room for prejudice. It's not for Romans or centurions or Ro Roman army soldiers or, or Gentiles of any kind. And that principle carries forward to any marginalized person, any, any minority people groups, whether they're there by default or choice. The point of this is that no one is to be excluded from the offer of the gospel. And it is our responsibility and our mission to, without partiality or prejudice, to take the gospel to everyone. And then beyond just reaching out to others, here's the second thing we need to look at here. People are not simply evangelistic targets for us. We should actually enjoy friendship and fellowship with all. Not just preaching to all, not just proclaiming the gospel to all, but actually enjoying friendship with all. Enjoying fellowship with 
all. I mean, we're designed for human interaction. And, and we're designed for that, not just with people who are like us, we'll, like us, we'll come back to that point. And, and really, when we think about it, of all the things that we're struggling with in this lockdown during this pandemic, the loss of personal interaction is probably the greatest thing that we're struggling with. That's why people are now like, I need to get out. I need to do some things. I, I need to, I, we need to see our society opened up again. And all the pressure to do that is because we're just really chafing inside over this this isolation. I mean, God said, you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter two, God had created everything and everything was good. And then he saw the one thing that wasn't good. He'd only created Adam. And he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. We're wired for relationship. And, you know, I've talked to some introverts who are all like, I'm loving this. I'm loving this lockdown. But even introverts, even introverts need to come up for air now and then. So notice verse 10 now, Jesus, he's reclined at table. That was the posture that they would have. Tables were low. They were kind of on the ground on pillows and such, and they would kind of recline at the table in the house. Very relaxed setting. And in, here at the, at, at the house, this is Matthew's place. The other gospels let us know that. Many tax collectors and sinners and his disciples, I mean, they're having a big dinner party right now because Jesus understood something and was practicing something. I just love the way Teddy Roosevelt actually says this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And what Jesus is showing here is, I'm not just going to preach the gospel to you. I want you to know that I care for you. I care for you enough to break down all the cultural barriers that would keep me from having a meal in your home. I don't care what other people think. I'm going to show you that I love you. And we have to be willing to take some risks here and to cultivate relationship with people who are not like us in order to, to, to completely embody the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as he did. Now, I want to get a greater sense of who's at this dinner party and who's actually being referred to here in this list, the tax collectors, the sinners, the disciples are there, but who actually are these sinners? Now, when the word is used here, and it's used a few times in this passage, but when it's used here, it's actually being used according to the Pharisees' definition. This is so important. It's being used according to the Pharisees' definition of sinners and not the biblical one. The biblical definition of sinner is, well, you can pull up several verses, uh, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. A little bit later on, Romans 3.23, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all born in sin. We're all separated from God as a result. We all need the redemption that Jesus Christ provides by his shed blood. Everyone in the same boat. But the Pharisees were too self-righteous, too holy in their own eyes to recognize their own sin. They would never refer to themselves as sinners. And they're using the word here, when they use the word sinner, they're using it as a pejorative for anyone that they don't like. 
anyone that they think doesn't belong, anyone who doesn't measure up to their standard of holiness and righteousness. It was indeed applied to prostitutes. It was applied to tax collectors who were collaborating with the Romans. It was applied to undesirables. It was applied to all non-Jews. It was applied to all outcasts of society by their definition of that. And when it's defined that way, here's the thing, that takes in an awful lot of people. Essentially, it takes in everybody from their perspective. Everyone who's not a Pharisee to them seems like a sinner. It would fall into their categories. Anyone that we're uncomfortable around, anyone on the margins of society, in essence, anyone who isn't like us. Now, the fact is we like people who are like us. The easiest people, if I could use myself as an example here, you can use yourself as the example and change the criteria, but let me just tell you that the easiest people for me to be around are obviously, I push myself to be in other relationships and to have other friendships. We all do that. I'm just saying the easiest people for me to be around, here's my list, the easiest people for me to be around are white, male, English-speaking, middle-aged, married, a parent, a grandparent, Canadian, Protestant-raised, Christian, in vocational ministry, healthy, middle-class, from a, middle, a medium-sized city. Now, if I can get people like that, 14 criteria, if I could check the box on all of those things, I find so much commonality with a person who's like me that I can get along with them most easily. Now, I take away any of those things. If the person isn't English speaking or English isn't their first language, that makes it a little bit more complex to have a relationship with them. Don't get me started on how complex it can be to have a friendship with a woman you know, I mean, obviously, 1 Peter 3, 7 says, just in terms of the husband-wife relationship, live with your wife in an understanding way is a huge challenge for any man. That's a lifelong pursuit. Even after 30 years of marriage, I'm still pursuing that. To have a friendship, a relationship, a working relationship, anything with someone who isn't of the same gender as you adds a complexity I think about city people, somebody from New York City. I think that's exciting. It's cool, I just, but I don't get it. What it's like to live in a mega city versus living in a nice little city like we live in. Well, you understand what I'm saying here. It's just um, challenging, uh, adds complexity to us, and it just makes the point that it's easier to be around people who are like us, and we like that. It's comfortable. If I could use another example, it's no different for recent immigrants to Canada. It's easier to stay uh, within their own people group, even as they live in Canada. So what we have in Canada are all these different ethnic communities that rise up because it's complex enough, it's courageous enough to move to a new country that's not like your culture at all. And then you're fully immersing yourself in the culture, but it's easier to have some anchor points where I can go back to what I know is absolutely comfortable for me. And I'm not dissing that at all. I'm just making a point about how challenging this is. Because the fact is we like people. We like people who are like us. But that's not Jesus' way, is it? Jesus likes people who are unlike him. 
the exact opposite. Jesus likes people who are unlike him. Think about it. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've come into a relationship with him. But think of what he had to overcome to have this relationship with you. He's sinless. You and I are sin sinners. He's pre-existent. We were born. We didn't exist in eternity past. He's God. We're human. He's all-powerful. We're weak and fragile. He's all-knowing. We have finite little brains. He's everywhere. And we're just here. And yet, he cultivated a friendship with us. He cultivated a friendship with people who are so, so unlike him. And that's good news. I mean, for Jesus to enter Matthew's home, to sit, to have a meal, brought a complexity that was not culturally accepted. And Jesus, Jesus is really showing us here that as Christians, we must enjoy friendship and fellowship with all. And, and what we're doing is we're preparing for that day, that glorious day. Fast forward all the way to the end of the age. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Listen now, here it is. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. If there's no room for partiality and prejudice on that side of eternity... Listen, Christians, there's no room for partiality and prejudice on this side of eternity either. And I hope I can get an amen to that. All right. I also have to admit that I may be oblivious to my own prejudices. Some of you might be sitting here right now going, like, I'm not a prejudiced person. And that may be true. But it may be that you have some hidden prejudices, some partiality towards some people that you're not even aware of. The Pharisees here, they're tracking with all of this. They see what's going on. They see Jesus call Matthew. They see him going to Matthew's house now with all of his uh, buddies and all these so-called sinners and these tax collectors. In verse 11, they ask the disciples now, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they were oblivious to the inconsistency in their own life saying, we love Yahweh. We serve the God and creator of all things, but we despise certain people. They couldn't see the inconsistency in that. And in fact, they didn't think that a rabbi like Jesus or a respected teacher should ever be found with outcasts people that they consider to be outcasts. By the way, I think this is like, can I bring this just to a very contemporary, down-to-earth, right-where-we-live example? This is like professing Christians, and please look and see that I'm putting Christians in quotes. This is like professing Christians who think that protesting the gay pride parade is gospel work that it's a godly thing to do, that it would be sanctioned by God. And it's not. 
In, in fact, to protest the gay pride parade would be antithetical to the gospel, antithetical to what Jesus is showing us here. And if you want to make an impact the way Jesus made an impact, not only are you not going to protest the gay pride parade, you're going to actually develop some friendships with some people who are marching in that parade. I mean, the reality is we have so many ingrained prejudices that we're not even aware of simply by virtue of the culture that we live in and the forces at work in that culture. And because of the homes that we were raised in, the times that we were a part of, See, if we're part of the majority culture like so many uh, watching me now are, we actually have little frame of reference to know what it's like to feel prejudice. We don't notice it in ourselves because so many people around us, they're the same as we are. We've surrounded ourselves with people who are the same. And James 2 actually tackles this, the the church that James is writing to wasn't even aware that what they were doing was wrong. It, it seemed in their own mind that it was a good thing to do. In fact, James 2 tackles this thorny issue where preferential treatment was being given to wealthy people in the church. It just makes sense. Let's give them, look how much they're giving to the church. Let's make sure they get a really nice seat over here. Let's make sure they get some privileges and we can honor them. The flip side of that, of course, again, same coin, two sides, the, the poor, the impoverished in the church were being prejudiced against. So James calls it out, verse 1, James chapter 2, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That seems very clear. Show no partiality means no giving preference. This is the principle that's, that's coming to us, okay? It may not be about rich or poor for us, but it's going to be about something. We've made distinctions. When we do that, and what James is addressing is that they have made distinctions. This is verse 4 of James 2. Made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. But then he says, here's the solution. Verses 8 and 9 of James 2. If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, he says, you're committing sin. The, the royal law is, is, the, is the great commandment. It's, it's love God, love people. Exactly what we have on the wall in our West Lobby. The whole point here is that when we get rid of the partiality, when we get rid of the prejudice, we're genuinely living by the royal law. We're demonstrating to people that we love them. And we give a hearing to the gospel when we do that. Now, the point here is to say that it's entirely possible that you have blind spots with respect to that. I know I do. We don't know how prejudiced we are. But if we could admit that we are often unknowingly partial to some, prejudicial toward others, and if we could repent of that, then we'll be on track to living out the royal law. 
and embodying the gospel of Christ. So, repent. Repent of racism. Repent of ageism. Repent of ableism. Repent of sexism. Repent of classism. Repent of that attitude that you have where you acknowledge that, yes, there are people who have mental health issues and we should talk about it, but then feeling like you don't want them to talk about it. Repent of your words. Repent of your actions. Repent of the sideways glances and the thoughts that go through your mind and the attitudes that you have. Repent of all of this, and so that we're clear what repentance is. Repentance is agreeing with God that how I'm living and how I see it is wrong. No excuses, no caveats, no qualifications. How I'm seeing it is wrong. And then secondly, turning from my way to his way. And if we own that, we're going to go a long way to eliminating partiality and partiality and prejudice and making the gospel believable to the people around us. One more. Let's advocate for those who are discriminated against. Uh, Jesus then says, as if, as if everything else wasn't provocative enough, now he says something super provocative in verse 12. Those who are well and we're going to put that word well in, in quotes, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And when he says well here, he means it. Like, this is sarcastic. No one's well, but he's pushing back on the Pharisees. You guys think you're well? Fine, you're well, but you're not well. The Pharisees thought they were. And he continues on in verse 13 to say, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire heart. I want something real that's coming up from inside of you and not sacrifice. When he says sacrifice here, what he's talking about is the sacrificial system. All of the outward religious rituals that they were performing that were stated in the scriptures but should never flow from anything other than a heart that is devoted to Christ. He says, I want mercy. I want your heart. I don't want your outward observance. And in fact, that quote is from Hosea 6.6. 6. And he goes on to say, I, I came not to call the so-called, they thought they were righteous. I came not to call the righteous. Again, a bit of a sarcastic comment here. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in fact, he's using the word sinners there in the right way. Those who actually know they're standing before God, who are more than willing to admit it, who have confessed their brokenness before God and said, I don't have it in me. God, I need you to cleanse me and forgive my sins. Jesus says, I've actually come for the outcasts, the very people that you despise. And so like for us, if we want to be on team Jesus, it's not just about not being prejudiced or not showing partiality. It's actually now about being very provocative, very proactive in addressing the injustice. I think we default into that old saying, you know, if you can't say something nice about a person, 
Don't say anything. If you can't think a nice thought about a person, don't think anything. If you don't think you're ever going to be in a relationship with a person, then just don't be in a relationship with them. And some Christians may be unknowingly following that advice in this case. They have prejudice in their hearts, but they don't want to appear racist. They don't want to appear sexist. They don't want to appear ageist or whatever we're talking about here. So they simply don't say anything or do anything in order to project a false image of not being prejudiced. That's not good enough. Not for the followers of Christ. Again, 1 Samuel 16, verse 9, God is, has Samuel in this place where he's going to be selecting the next king of Israel, and he's with Jesse's family, and he goes through all the sons, and finally it comes down to David, who was just not even the one that anybody was thinking was the one. And God said, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David was his man. Jesus proactively, intentionally engaged in conversations with women. We've seen it already in this series. He talked to women. That wasn't something that was done in that culture. He, he talked to Samaritans, and Jews hated Samaritans, and, and it was mutual. He touched lepers. He had relationship with and spoke to and met the needs of the poor beggars. He engaged with political dissidents and, and, and revolutionaries. He even called a zealot to be part of his 12. He engaged with Gentiles as he is here and Roman centurions. And by so doing, he let us all know that the way God sees such people is the way that we ought to see such people. Do you see people the way God sees people? I mean, in sitting down to eat with these so-called sinners, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. That's a phrase from Ephesians 2, verse 14. The dividing wall of hostility is that dividing wall created by sin, the dividing wall between us and God that Jesus Christ, by his work on the cross, eradicated. He broke it down. But also, in the context of Ephesians 2, this is the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And so it's a race issue. Paul also is saying in the book of Ephesians, there's no room for partiality or prejudice. And we would add there's no room for passivity about partiality and prejudice. We must be advocates for those who have been marginalized by prejudice. We must call out those who show partiality to favored ones. We cannot sit this one out. And the reason why is simple. Whether you are black, white, Asian, Arab, Jewish, or indigenous, whether you are young or old, male or female, or confused about that, whether you are gay or straight, rich or poor, healthy or infirmed, abled or disabled, politically left or right, slave or master, native or foreign born, smart or not so smart, you bear the image of God. The fact of creation is the unavoidable truth for those who have Christ. There are no lesser people. 
We are not judges of a person's worthiness. We have no adversaries save one. And he's not human. We are as Jesus was. We are the friend of sinners. We we eat with tax collectors and so-called sinners. We should be crushed in recent days at the news of COVID-19 running rampant through poor communities, through slums and working class neighborhoods and certain racial groups, running through factory floors, hitting the working class and long-term care homes affecting the aged. We should be incensed and angry at any expression of racism towards Asians as if they're to blame for this. We need to repent of all of that. And we need to become advocates for the way of Christ. You say, what can I do? Well, to become an advocate for impartiality is going to require some intentionality on our parts. Let me give you five things that I think might be helpful. The first is this. Listen to the stories of minorities and and the marginalized. Listen to the stories. That's going to mean doing some reading, watching some videos, some documentaries. It's going to mean getting together with them. It's going to mean asking questions. Taking in all the information you can. And then having heard, secondly, learn. We wouldn't dare think that just listening is enough. You actually have to learn the lessons. Learn from the life and experiences of those who are not like you. Ignorance is a barrier that has to be overcome and can be overcome. Enter into what people have endured. Ask them how they feel about it. Learn. Third, having learned, lament. Lament that we are still so far from what Jesus modeled for us. Lament the hatred in the world. Lament that so many are still hurting. I read an article this week speaking specifically around the issue of race and concerning lament and that we ought to be praying prayers of lament as are modeled in the scriptures. Mark Vregop, I hope I said his name correctly, uh, said this, lament provides the tracks along which the pain of racial issues can move forward. It is a God-given means of vocalizing complicated and loaded pain. And I always just think about Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's lament. And God gives us permission to pray, encourages us to pray in that way, crying out in anguish at our plight and the plight of others. Fourthly, having listened, having learned, having lamented, We now lift our own voices and speak out against injustice. This is what advocacy is. When you see it, you call it out. And then finally, you lend your time and energy to the cause. You discover ways to actually make a difference. And this isn't necessarily, you know me enough to know, this isn't necessarily about petitions and protests. Most real change happens when ordinary people like you and like me make the change. Rather than standing there with some placard and and shouting at someone else to change. I need to change. 
I need to model this. I need to live this out. So take a step to do that, to embody the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. Now here's a final word. This message, I know it's a heavy one. It's a minefield. We've navigated our way through it. Hopefully, hopefully no one is coming out injured by this, but encouraged. This message has been about challenging Christians on partiality and prejudice, but it's also about bringing comfort to those who find themselves in that minority place. Those who feel that they have been marginalized. What we want for harvest, in fact, for our church is to be a place of safety that reflects the kingdom of God itself as best we can in this sin-marred world. And there's no hiding the fact that this is a very difficult thing to pursue. It's hard. And, and listen, I'll confess right now, we're not always going to get it right. And we need to stay open and teachable to what people are saying around us and what the Word of God says. But we must be committed. We must stay the course. We must say here at Harvest, and I love these words from Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I hope you want that. That's what I want for our church. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for this world. Let's pray together. Father, you have been so uh, kind to us. Father, you have blessed us in overwhelming ways. You have brought us together as the church knit our hearts together. Father, you've given us your word and spoken to us so that we are not left wondering. You've given us your son, Jesus Christ, who not only gave his life for us on the cross and, and made it possible to have our sins forgiven and to enter into relationship with you, but Father modeled everything about the life that we ought to be living, a holy life, righteous, perfect. God, we want to lay our hands on that perfection. Father, we don't want to be people who show partiality. We don't want to be people who show prejudice toward anyone. We want to be just as open, just as loving as Jesus was. So God, help us in that. I know we're not going to get it perfect. Forgive us when we fail. But God, fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us Make us just like that scene in heaven. Bring us all together as one in Jesus Christ. We thank you for being with us this morning, being with your church. We thank you for hearing this prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.